Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and today we will be discussing the doctrine of qualified immunity. But before we do, I just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast. First of all, I'm an attorney and a firearms instructor and a husband with a passion for freedom. At the Forge of Freedom, we believe that freedom is the highest political goal, and we believe that individuals thrive where freedom and personal responsibility coexist. Without a populace that shares a passion for freedom and personal responsibility, the world can quickly devolve into tyranny. And it is our hope that this podcast can help motivate our listeners and those around them to create and preserve freedom for themselves and for future generations. But the task of creating and preserving freedom is not an easy one. Freedom is not given to us by government, and it is not passed on in the bloodstream. Freedom is forged through personal responsibility, education, and continued vigilance. And we want to motivate you and equip you with the knowledge, the skills, and the attitude to develop your body, mind, and soul for the task of living a freer life and creating a freer world. We want you to have the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. We want you to be the forge of freedom. So with that said, once again, I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode six of the Forge of Freedom. And let's go ahead and jump into the topic for for today. What is qualified immunity? In recent years, there's been a lot of media coverage about police and law enforcement accountability. And much of the problem is attributed to systemic racism and inequality. And I think this may have some to do with it, but I believe it's a very small part of it. I believe a much larger problem is the lack of accountability. And this lack of accountability is mostly attributable to a doctrine known as qualified immunity. In the United States, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated what's called clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. In qualified immunity, uh, we typically think about it in the context of policing, as, as I've already alluded to, but it also applies to other government officials. And it's really a form of uh, sovereign immunity that's less protective than absolute immunity. And it's intended to protect officials who make reasonable but mistaken judgments about open legal questions, extending to to all officials but the plainly incompetent or those who knowingly violate the law. That's the idea anyway. But in practice, as we'll see, that's not how it works. The United States Supreme Court uh, first introduced the... uh, doctrine of qualified immunity in a case called Pearson versus Ray in 1967. And this was a case litigated during the height 
of the civil rights movement. And it really was introduced with the rationale of protecting law enforcement officials from frivolous lawsuits and financial liability in cases where they acted in good faith in unclear legal situations. And this good faith standard uh, existed for uh, about 15 years. And the idea is that we didn't want a system where officers were hesitant to perform their duties because they feared uh, legal liability or a lawsuit might result uh, from the exercise of their duties. But it's not quite that simple. And to explain, uh, I want to talk about uh, the context in which qualified immunity is typically asserted. Qualified immunity typically arises in civil rights cases, uh, particularly uh, lawsuits arising under federal statute 42 U.S.C. section 1983. And under Section 1983, a plaintiff can sue for damages when a state actor or government official violates their constitutional rights. Um, And Section 1983 reads as follows. Every person who, under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia, subjects or causes to be subject, subjected any citizen of the United States or other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured. And these cases are typically brought for violations recognized of rights recognized um, by the First Amendment, uh, the right to free speech, uh, the, the Fourth Amendment, uh, the right to be free from unreasonable search or seizure, uh, the Fifth Amendment, equal protection, due process, and uh, the Eighth Amendment, protection from cruel and unusual punishment. But what's important to note, however, is that Uh, Section 1983 does not say anything about immunity for government officials. It's really just a statute that provides a mechanism to sue government officials for violations of individual rights. So why is this important? And why why am I telling you this, that Section 1983 doesn't talk about protection or immunity? Well, it's because qualified immunity is not a creature of legislation. Congress never passed a law providing uh, qualified immunity. It was created by the judiciary, um, which is not the function of the judicial branch. So this is really problematic. Uh, The origins of qualified immunity are really problematic. Uh, Like I said, the case in 1967 established this good faith requirement, the Pearson versus Ray case. But more recently, in 1982, the modern test for qualified immunity was established in Harlow 
versus Fitzgerald. And prior to Harlow versus Fitzgerald under the good faith standard, the court would grant immunity to government officials only if, number one, the official believed in good faith that their conduct was lawful, and two, the conduct was objectively reasonable. And this good faith standard looked at the officer's state of mind and often required a jury trial. But there were concerns over allowing suits uh, to go this far. And that by allowing suits to go this far, officials would be deterred from performing their duties. So the government, or the court rather, the Supreme Court in Harlow versus Fitzgerald came up with this new standard where government officials performing discretionary functions generally are shielded from liability for civil damages insofar as their conduct does not violate clearly established, and that's key language, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights. So with this new standard, the application of qualified immunity no longer required looking at an official's subjective state of mind, but rather focused on the question of whether or not a reasonable person in the official's position would have known their actions were in line with clearly established legal principles. So what does this mean? What is this clearly established legal principles or clearly established law requirement? Whether the law is clearly established depends on whether case law has addressed the disputed issue or has established, as the Supreme Court has said, the contours of the right such that it is clear that officials' conduct is illegal. In order to meet the requirement of this clearly established law, the facts of the current case must be nearly identical to the facts of a prior case on the same point. And this is problematic. And I want to talk about a few cases here just to point out why this clearly established law requirement is so problematic. The first case is Corbett versus Vickers. And this is an 11th Circuit case from 2019. And in this case, a parent brought a Section 1983 claim against a police officer. And the allegations were that the police officer violated the 4th and 14th Amendment after the child was shot by the officer while the officer attempted to shoot a family dog. And the Court of Appeals uh, held that the Fourth Amendment applied so that there was a constitutional violation. However, the court held that the child's right not to be accidentally shot in the leg was not clearly established because there had never been a case with a similar or same set of facts prior to this one. So 
there was a constitutional violation. Nonetheless, the officer was entitled to qualified immunity because the law wasn't clearly established. In Jessup versus City of Fresno, Ninth Circuit case, 2019, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit decided that two police officers in Fresno, California, who stole more than $225,000 in assets while executing a search warrant could not be sued over the incident. In the case said, though the city officers ought to have recognized that the alleged theft was morally wrong, the unanimous Ninth Circuit panel said the officers did not have clear notice that it violated the Fourth Amendment. In other words, the cops didn't have enough warning to know that stealing is an encroachment on one's constitutional rights. So even though they clearly violated the Constitution, because there wasn't a case like it, there would not have been sufficient notice to the officers that it was a constitutional violation and they were entitled to um, qualified immunity. Another example, Baxter versus Bracey, a Sixth Circuit case from 2018. Uh, here the criminal suspect surrendered during a chase by police and was seized by a dog after surrendering. He brought a Section 1983 case against the arresting officers, alleging that the use of the canine to apprehend him constituted excessive force because he'd already surrendered. There were other similar cases that determined that the use of a canine to seize a suspect after surrender was excessive force in violation of the Constitution, but the court here made a distinction that said that qualified immunity uh, applied to the officers because although other cases looked similar, they were not a perfect fit. And it had to do with whether the suspect was standing up or sitting down. And finally, I want to point out one more case, uh, just as an example. Uh, here, this is City and County of San Francisco, California versus Sheehan, a 2015 Supreme Court case. And here, the court said, even if an officer acts contrary to her training, that does not itself negate qualified immunity where it would otherwise be warranted. Rather, so long as a reasonable officer could have believed that his conduct was justified, a plaintiff cannot avoid summary judgment by simply producing an expert report that an officer's conduct leading up to a deadly confrontation was imprudent, inappropriate, or even reckless. In, a, in close cases, a jury does not automatically get to second-guess these life-and-death decisions, even though a plaintiff has an expert and a plausible claim that the situation could better 
have been handled. So even where an officer acts contrary to their training, as long as they did not violate clearly established law, so as long as there's no case with factually similar circumstances, they will be entitled to qualified immunity. Judge Willett, in a decision by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, had this to say about qualified immunity. He says, To some observers, qualified immunity smacks of unqualified impunity. Letting public officials duck consequences for bad behavior, no matter how palpably unreasonable, as long as they were the first to behave badly. And that's the problem. It's really a a novel way, it's a doctrine that allows the violation of rights, even when the court agrees that the actions were unconstitutional. The official essentially gets a free pass, whether, and this is whether it's law enforcement or some other government official, but they get a free pass because no one has been sued over the exact rights violation occurring under the exact circumstances. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a Supreme Court-created standard. And I'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But it wasn't created by... This qualified immunity wasn't created by Congress. It wasn't a legislative act. It was a doctrine created out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court. And this doctrine has resulted in many federal judges refusing to to declare actions to be unconstitutional because no one before them has bothered to find violations to be clearly established. And I think... Qualified immunity really results in more injustice than justice because it, it creates a shelter for government official misconduct. It creates this sort of catch-22 where plaintiffs have to produce precedent to show clearly established law but you can't create clearly established law in the current case unless there's one like it previously. And essentially what this adds up to is no precedent, which means no prior case, means no clearly established law, which means no liability. Essentially, It means if you flip a coin, it's heads, the government defendant wins, tails, the plaintiff loses. The victim, the constitutional rights violation, the claim for a constitutional rights violation, loses. So what do we do about this? Like I said earlier, this doctrine of qualified immunity, it's it's a doctrine created out of whole cloth by the court. 
And it's a doctrine that, with this clearly established law requirement, is incredibly difficult for civil rights plaintiffs to overcome. I think the courts could um, overturn the doctrine of qualified immunity, but they haven't seemed receptive to that possibility, even as recently as 2021, although they have seemed like they might be inclined to reduce its scope, they don't, they don't seem to be interested in eliminating qualified immunity entirely. But does qualified immunity really even achieve its, its, its goals, its stated goals? Well, it, it certainly acts as a shield to civil liability for government officials. But the problem with it is that it prioritizes the potential liability of bad actors over the constitutional rights of individuals. And this is exactly the opposite of what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights intended. It, if such a protection were intended, it would have been included in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. So I think it's clear that, that qualified immunity creates numerous problems by erring on the side of limiting government account accountability over protecting constitutional rights. It shields government officials from personal liability, even in cases where they have clearly violated an individual's constitutional rights. It has a chilling effect on civil rights claims and makes it difficult for individuals to hold government officials accountable for violating their rights. And it creates this lack of transparency. transparency. The, the process for determining qualified immunity is so convoluted and opaque, it makes it difficult for individuals to understand when and why officials are being shielded from liability. So it creates this lack of transparency, this lack of trust. And I think it also discourages good behavior as much as it encourages bad behavior. Qualified immunity reduces the incentive for government officials to act in accordance with the law and respect individual rights. Government officials are supposed to be public servants. And qualified immunity really engenders an environment where government officials treat people more like subjects. But, but some might say, well, if we get rid of qualified immunity, won't it be impossible to find people to work as police officers? And I think the answer to that is no. Uh, remember, like I said, the first case that sort of established this doctrine of qualified immunity, although with the good faith standard, was in 1967. And until 1967, government workers were strictly liable for constitutional violations, even if they were following the laws that turned out to be unconstitutional. And we had law enforcement prior to 1967, and law enforcement had simply to balance the duties of policing with the restrictions of the Constitution, which is the way it should be. 
And even without qualified immunity, there are other protections for government officials and police officers. In fact, nearly all judgments and settlements against government officials are paid by government employers or their insurers. Uh, in fact, there's a, a, some research that found that when qualified immunity has been overcome, so when the plaintiff gets over the hurdle of qualified immunity and gets to proceed with the case, individual officers contributed to settlements in just 0.41% of the cases and paid approximately 0.02% of the total awards to plaintiffs. So even where in the rare cases where the plaintiff did get over the hurdle of qualified immunity, the government official here, the police officers, paid less than a tenth of a percent, 0.02% of the total reward to plaintiffs. So where is qualified immunity going in the future? Well, like I said, this is a court-made, judicial-made doctrine. The court is not in the business of making law. They're in the business of interpreting the law. And the court could revisit the doctrine and overturn the doctrine of qualified immunity. And like I said, the court has been unwilling to eliminate the doctrine of qualified immunity. But in a decision called the, uh, the Taylor decision by the Supreme Court in 2020, the court seemed open to cutting back on the scope of qualified immunity, at least. So while it's not the ideal solution, it is a step in the right direction. Furthermore, Congress could change it. Uh, Congress never intended for qualified immunity to exist in the first place. Um, the courts created it, but nevertheless, Congress could eliminate it. In fact, some states have eliminated qualified immunity. Colorado, Connecticut, New Mexico uh, are just some examples of states that have limited, uh, have limited or eliminated qualified immunity. One thing, another thing that's always bothered me about qualified immunity is that government officials are, giving, are given immense power and responsibility. But then by putting in place the doctrine of qualified immunity, we're, put, we're holding these officials to a lower standard than the rest of us. For you and me, for the ordinary citizen, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I can't say that I should not be responsible for breaking the law because I did not know the law. And this is true for everyone except people entrusted with enforcing the law, which just seems totally absurd. Law enforcement and government officials 
should obey the law and the Constitution. And if they don't, plaintiffs should have a remedy for that. Of course, eliminating qualified immunity would not fix all the problems that we see with policing or with government official misconduct. Uh, there are other issues, of course, uh, one of which, for policing in particular, is that police are tasked with enforcing far too many laws. And by enforcing far too many laws, that results in far more police interactions, far more mistakes, and a much greater potential for bad outcomes. So I hope you learned a little bit about qualified immunity. Um, that's sort of the, the overview of it, some of the problems with it. And if you want to learn more, there are a few great resources that I want to point out. Uh, first, I would encourage you to check out the Institute for Justice. Uh, they have a, a project called the Project on Immunity and Accountability, which includes a number of briefs that the Institute for Justice has filed addressing qualified immunity, as well as a lot of uh, important academic research. I'd also encourage you to check out the um, website called Unlawful Shield. It's by the Cato Institute. Uh, they've done a lot of great work about the problems with qualified immunity and a lot of the cases that um, have challenged the doctrine of qualified immunity. Thanks everyone for tuning in. And if you like the show, don't forget to like and subscribe. Again, we're available on YouTube, Rumble, and all your most popular podcast streaming sources. I look forward to talking with you again next week, and we're going to discuss the presumption of innocence and how could an attorney defend someone who is guilty. Until then, remember, you are the forge of freedom.